0: This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
1: A Dane County judge handed down another ruling to the State Assembly Speaker Robin Voss on Friday, giving him a second chance to produce records regarding the investigation into the 2020 presidential election. The the Associated Press reports that the records stem from one of four lawsuits filed by the liberal watchdog group American Oversight regarding the investigation. Voss now has 20 days to submit the requested documents and has been ordered to pay statutory and attorney fees to American Oversight.
0: A Republican-controlled committee in the state legislature is scheduled to meet on Wednesday to discuss throwing out a rule allowing local election clerks to fill in missing information on completed absentee ballots. The Capitol Times reports the Wisconsin Elections Commission rule came under scrutiny after the 2020 presidential election. While the Elections Commission is working to codify that rule, state legislatures say that the agency has no authority to do so and are expected to strike down the rule on Wednesday.
1: The city of Milwaukee is one step closer to becoming the home of the 2024 Republican National Convention, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The site selection committee for the convention has recommended Milwaukee to hold the convention where Republicans will officially name their next candidate for president. It won't be the first time Milwaukee held a national convention, but it will be the first time Milwaukee has held one in person. In 2020, the Democratic National Convention was held in Milwaukee, but that event was later moved to a largely online convention. The final decision for the Republican National Convention is down to either Milwaukee or Nashville and a final decision is expected in August.
0: Today is an important birthday for the city of Madison. Monona Terrace opened 25 years ago today in 1997. Over the years, the terrace has held over 16,000 events and continues to make strides, earning the LEED Platinum status for its sustainability practices. To celebrate the birthday, a free event of music, dance, and even a drone show will be held this Saturday at the Monona Terrace Rooftop Gardens. More information on that event can be found on the City of Madison website.
1: A happy birthday to the Terrace. Looking to make some at-home improvements but don't have the right tools for the job? Don't worry, the Madison Public Library has you covered. DIY kits for everything from home decor, sewing, and even food prep are available to rent at the Penny Library. The free kits are first-come, 1st serve, and are available for all library patrons. And now, on to today's top stories.
0: When the pandemic... When the pandemic began in 2020, it became apparent that Madison's homeless shelters were not adequate to curb the spread of COVID. And so, the county began their emergency hotel shelter program, placing unhoused folks with COVID in a hotel to safely recover and limit the spread of the virus at the same time. Now, the county is looking to extend that program as cases begin to climb once again. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more.
2: Last week, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi announced his intention to extend the county's Pandemic Emergency Hotel Shelter Program through at least February 2023. The Emergency Hotel Shelter Program, which started at the onset of the pandemic in March of 2020, houses unhoused folks in Dane County in area hotels instead of at a normal shelter to help fight the spread of COVID-19. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi says that he sees the program as a big success.
3: And at the peak of the program, we served about 400 um, individuals in hotel rooms. Um, at the same time, we soon after we instituted a program to supply case management and dollars to help acquire permanent housing for people. Our hotels to housing program, and over the last couple of years, we you know been very successful at moving people from hotels into housing between our program and other programs uh, over 250 people have successfully, from that program, have successfully found housing.
2: Under the new expansion, the program would continue to offer individual shelter for unhoused folk until September 30th. That part of the program allows people to stay in the hotel instead of in a normal homeless shelter to reduce the spread of COVID-19 to unhoused folks at higher risk of severe illness. The extension will also continue their isolation and quarantine shelter through February 2023. This provides unhoused folks a place to stay while they isolate and recover from the virus. At the peak of the Omicron variant in the winter of 2021 and 2022, the program served over 110 people at one time. Parisi says that this will allow the around 65 people still in the hotels to find a more permanent place to stay.
3: And we've been keeping that going as long as we can, and we're, you know, we're starting to run out of money. Um, but we felt, especially with kind of, you know, COVID, with the new variant coming still out there, um, we still needed some more time to try to um, find housing for some of the last people in the program. Um, so we just want to do everything we can to try to help these folks who are still there, you know, find housing, and if not, explore their alternatives and make sure you know we can help out as many people as possible.
2: The extension of the program will cost the county a little over $3 million, which would come out of aid provided by the American Rescue Plan. So far, the county has spent over $23 million on the program since 2020. Brenda Conkle is the executive director of Mach One Health, an advocacy group for unhoused folks here in Madison, and runs the dairy Drive Tiny Home Encampment. While they are not directly involved with the hotel shelter program, Conkle says that she is pleased to see that the program has worked so well.
4: And I think that it, it really has shown that the Housing First model, a model that, that gets people into Housing First and then worries about everything else, Um, really is a model that works um, and it can be successful even here in Madison, you know, where we have a tight rental market, people are still getting into housing. So I think that the hotel program has shown us what could be if we want to continue to type, to continue with these types of programs.
2: The resolution to authorize the extension is expected to go before the Dane County Board in the coming weeks. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Woogie
1: On Sunday, Democratic candidates for the United States Senate faced off in a debate ahead of the partisan primaries in August. The candidates focused their attacks less on each other and more on Republican Senator Ron Johnson, whom they hope to unseat this coming November. WORT reporter Reed
5: Kamai has more. According to the Marquette Law School poll in June, 36% of respondents were unsure of who they would support in the Democratic primary for United States Senate. These 36% had the opportunity to see the candidates for themselves as they took to the debate stage on Sunday. The debate, held at Marquette University's Varsity Theater, featured five of the eight Democratic candidates who will appear on the partisan primary ballot. The candidates featured were Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, State Treasurer Sarah Godlewski, Milwaukee Bucks Senior Vice President Alex Lasry, Outagamie County Executive Tom Nelson, and founder of the Millennial Action Project, Stephen Olikara. These five candidates qualified by meeting the criteria set by TMJ4, the NBC affiliate which broadcast the debate. To qualify, candidates were required to have at least 5% support in the most recent Marquette Law School polling or in any poll approved by 538, or an average of 5% from the two Marquette polls prior to that, or at least 5,000 individual donations to the campaign. The other three Democratic candidates, lawyer and former White House correspondent Peter Pekarski, former state administrator of the Wisconsin Emergency Management Agency, Dr. Darrell Williams, and businessman Koo Lee failed to qualify. The debate covered six topics, inflation, abortion, Title IX, crime, foreign policy and agriculture, and the environment. The candidates at the debate did not hold back with their attacks on incumbent Senator Ron Johnson, this included Alex Lazary, who also touted his own track record in his work with the Bucks when discussing inflation.
1: We pay a $15 minimum wage in the Bucks arena. When it comes to creating jobs, we've done that. We've created 10,000 good-paying union jobs right here in Wisconsin. The problem that we have is that we have a senator right now in Ron Johnson who has no interest in helping working class people. He passed the Trump tax cut, which, was a, which raised taxes on the middle class. What it actually did was took worker deductions away that they could be using right now. We have to make sure that we're raising wages for people in this country and ensuring that we're bringing manufacturing back from overseas.
5: Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes has led in each edition of the Marquette Law School poll. On the subject of climate, he cited his work as chair of the state's Climate Change Task Force.
1: Now, as far as our
2: work on the task force for the very first time in the history of the state of Wisconsin. We have a clean power plan that was written in conjunction with our Office of Sustainability and Clean Energy. It was written with labor and also other environmental advocates to come up with a bold, comprehensive solution and we are on a track for the first time. This has never happened before. And with that being said, we have people like Ron Johnson who still say that climate change is BS. And so we need to get rid of Ron Johnson to end the fossil fuel subsidies and any politician who profits off of their holdings in oil and gas companies.
5: Mr. barnes stephen olakara came into the debate as an outsider with less than half a percent of support in the most recent marquette poll using the issue of transgender female athletes in sports as an example he criticized election officials for attempting to profit from divisive issues
2: because they know that they can use this as a fear tact- t- tactic to gin up votes and to gin up money And that's why I truly believe that members of Congress need to be focused on really my first piece of legislation in the Senate, which is getting big money uh, out of politics. Because the thing that the general public does not see that I saw walking through the halls of Congress is that these political consultants, they could care less about your life. What they care about is raising money off of you. And they know that this story about trans athletes is something that's going to scare people and gin up uh, money. We have to fundamentally change that system at its root. And I'm the only candidate running on that issue. Thank you.
5: On the topic of crime, the moderators noted that, according to the Gun Violence Archive, America has seen 48 mass shootings in the first 17 days of July, almost three a day on average. Sarah Godlewski made her case for a ban on assault rifles.
6: No, I do not believe we should have weapons of war in our community. Growing up in western Wisconsin with a family of hunters, I will tell you in talking to my dad about this issue, if you need an AR-15 to go hunting, go back to target practice. Because that is not
1: what this is about.
5: The candidates mostly refrained from attacking each other. But when the topic shifted to abortion, Tom Nelson called out Sarah Godlewski for not voting in the 2016 general
7: election. And we need to expand the Supreme Court because the Republicans have stabbed. Because of Donald Trump, he was able to get three appointments. And he was able to get three appointments because in 2016, people here did not turn out to vote, including Sarah Godlewski. And because of that, we have three Supreme Court justices. The only way to do this is to expand the Senate. By expanding the Senate, we need to elect someone from Wisconsin who could win and go there, get rid of the
5: filibuster. Last year, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reported that Godlewski did not vote in the 2016 election because she had moved to Wisconsin two months prior and was unsure if she was eligible to register. A voter must have been a resident in Wisconsin for 10 successive days prior to an election to be eligible to vote. Godlewski nonetheless put her rebuttal opportunity to use. As the
6: only woman on this stage, I don't need to be lectured by any men
0: about how important the 2016 election was.
5: TMJ4 will also broadcast a debate on July 24th between candidates for the Republican primary for Wisconsin governor. Both primary elections will take place on August 9th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kami.
0: It's now 619 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
1: Businesses around Madison are joining together to help raise funds for organizations working to ensure safe and affordable access to abortion care here in Wisconsin. Called Pink Out Week, over a dozen restaurants in Madison are participating, donating a portion of their profits this week to abortion access organizations. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Francesca Hong, state, state representative for Madison and local restaurant owner, about Pink Out Week.
2: So, Francesca, just to start things off here, what is
8: Pink Out Week? So, Pink Out Week is a collaboration between the community restaurants and the community to raise awareness about fighting for reproductive justice and ensuring the community that uh, many of the restaurants that are participating, as well as bars and other food and beverage industry establishments, um, firmly believe in a woman and and pregnant people's right to choose.
2: And so now, why are you doing this? Uh, so raising money for abortion funds through food how how did was that idea come up with?
8: So uh, I, I mean, I think once the Dobbs, uh, uh, the position came out, Uh, many in the community felt compelled to take action as a way to respond to the collective grief that came with um, our rights being stripped away. And so for those in the food and beverage community, the way we like to communicate to the community and advocate is through food and through drinks and through gathering. And so for us to come together collectively to raise awareness for reproductive justice and ensure that these organizations that are helping pregnant people and, and women and other folks who need health care, um, that we're on their side and that we stand with them and that we know we have to mourn this loss. And in order to move forward, um, we have to come together and make sure that folks know where we stand when it comes to human rights issues because abortion access is a human rights issue. And, and folks in the food and beverage community in Madison who are participating participating in Pink Out Week, um, we believe that, and we wanted to give people an opportunity um, to participate at the capacity that they have. Um, I think a lot of folks are going to do things um, and and let folks know that there are a lot of different avenues um, to, to take action.
2: And now you mentioned that there's a lot of individual restaurants that are participating in this. And I'll get into that in a few minutes here. But uh, just sort of starting off, you have a bunch of other events happening as well. But we started off yesterday with uh, the Bakers Against Racism community bake sale activation. Can, can you tell me a little bit about that? How, how did that go?
8: It went really well. I Christy uh, McKenzie and her team at Pasture and Plenty prioritized social good as a part of their mission, and they really wanted bakers and pastry chefs and, and folks in that industry to have an opportunity to, to share. Um, and I think that the, the community responded really well. Um, Pasture and Plenty has been a a critical partner in, in Pink Out Week and in their organizing efforts um, and I think when we say Bakers Against Racism um, that's what we mean. We, we won't stand for racism in our community and we know that part of reproductive justice really is about um, ensuring that this work is intersectional.
2: And now we have a whole bunch of other events happening this week as well. Can you sort of walk me through what else is happening this week?
8: Yes, we have a dinner tomorrow night um, at Pick and a Fur Coat, a lineup of phenomenal women shops who will be um, participating in a five course meal with funds going towards a women's medical fund. We also have the um, a variety of different restaurants and, and uh bars and food and beverage uh retail shops who are donating a portion of their sales towards various reproductive justice organizations. Um, I know Settle Down Tavern is doing a percentage of sales towards Planned Parenthood. Um, we've got State Line Distillery that has already started their, their week-long um, uh, sales that are a portion of sales that are going to, um, uh, I think, the, the Foundation for Black Women's Wellness. Um, And then we have an event coming up on Sunday at Pastor and Plenty. Uh, The lieutenant governor and I will be doing a share the table event, uh, a cooking demo of our favorite comfort foods, and having a conversation about how men and those who identify as men can be a part of the broader conversation on reproductive justice.
2: And now you are a lot of the funds from these events and from these restaurants are being donated to uh, abortion funds and organizations here in Wisconsin. Can you tell me uh, who are some of those organizations that you will
8: be donating the funds to? Absolutely. We have Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin as well as Planned Parenthood Action of Wisconsin. There's the Wisconsin um, Abortion Support Network, um, POWERS, uh, the uh, Women's Medical Fund, um, as well as uh, the Foundation for Black Women's Wellness.
2: And you can find uh, some interviews with all of those groups uh, online at wartfm.org. We've talked with many of them, and they are all uh, very important organizations here in our community. Now I sort of want to get into the Dane County Food Collective and the Culinary Ladies Collective, the two organizations that are sort of teaming up to bring this on. What does that sort of collaboration look like, and what what do those groups do?
8: Yes, so the Dane County Food Collective is a newer organization. Um, We kind of are cultivated um, uh, post-Madison Area Chef Network where we wanted to have an inviting space for those who cared about bettering food systems to be able to come together and work through advocacy, um, mental health services, and um, community collective uh, uh, collective uh, buying. And so we wanted to have an organization that focused on folks who are in, uh, involved in the food industry or in wanting to better food systems to be able to have a space to be able to do work within those three different kind of sectors, that I mentioned. Um, and then with C- Culinary Ladies Collective, you know, we organically grew out of the 2016 election and a call to really bring together female food and beverage industry uh, folks. And then we broaden that out to non-binary folks as well, where people who are traditionally um, historically underrepresented in the food and beverage industry had a space to not only collectively share stories and be in community, but also have an avenue to uh, take action. And so We've done, or, uh, we've had a relationship with Planned Parenthood and doing our cookie bake sale for them. Um, these past couple years, our funds raised from the cookie, uh, sale have gone towards, um, the, uh, Center Hispano and Harambe Village. And so our, our focus on, on women and, and pregnant people's reproductive health has always kind of been at the center. So it made sense for, these two organizations to come together to be able to broaden the network of food and beverage industry folks who wanted to participate in this. And I just want to emphasize that a lot of different, you know, Small businesses right now in the food and beverage industry are doing what they can to, to bring light into this issue. So even if they are not participating in Pink Out Week, we've had restaurants and bars, you know, collect individually um, donate portions of sales to uh, reproductive justice organizations. So, so this is really just uh, another opportunity for folks to do that.
2: Now, one last thing I sort of want to touch on here is uh, you've talked a lot both in this interview and online through some of the social media stuff about the intersectionality uh, between supporting reproductive rights and anti-racism work. Uh, Can you sort of tell me about that intersection there?
8: I think it's important that we center many different voices when it comes to reproductive justice. I think traditionally there has been predominantly white women who have led this work, um, and, and we need an, an, uh, a broader coalition of people coming together to focus reproductive rights as human rights, and that just because you're not a woman or a pregnant person doesn't mean that your life is not going to be drastically impacted by this decision, that there is a chance that, you know, a most likely a strong chance, that more of our our collective rights are going to be compromised because of this. And so as a call to action, as as a a call to community and a call for power, we have to look at centering different voices and not those who have been historically at the forefront of this movement and really think about how this movement can be a broader coalition if we make sure that we center anti-racism and make sure that there's an intersectionality component um, to reproductive rights.
2: I've been talking with Representative Francesca Hong of Madison and local restaurant owner about Pink Out Week here in Madison. Francesca, thank you so much for talking with me today.
8: Nate, thank you so much for uh, having me on. It's been a pleasure.
0: The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to The Local News on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining us.
1: We now turn to ForwardLookout.com's Brenda Conkle and WORT's Dylan Brogan for a preview of what's happening in local government this week. Dane County is preparing to launch independent investigations, and the city of Madison takes the first step into implementing its Guaranteed Income Pilot Program.
9: It's Monday, and that means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. Uh, We have the Personnel and Finance Committee of Dane County, which is a hybrid meeting, and that starts at 445 today or is happening in the city-county building in room 351. So, yeah, what's personnel and finance up to?
4: So they had uh, two meetings right in a row. There's um, one that's sort of more of a personnel matter and then they will be having their their longer meeting. They had a very long agenda, but some of the things that people might be interested in, there's a couple of leases for the Dane County Airport. Um, They have a consulting services contract for their regional housing strategy. Um, They also had the extension for the non-congregate shelter, um, which is the the hotels that the people who are homeless who are staying in at the moment. Um, They also have change order number 13 for meet and hunt for the jail. Um, the ongoing Saga of the jail. Um, they also have a voluntary gun buyback program and they are getting a report about the Alliant Energy Center um, and so they'll be doing that at the end of the meeting.
9: So a lot uh, to look forward to in the weeks ahead so that some of these yes. things are coming up again. okay well that's good to know what about the um, what about the Board of Public Health for Madison and Dane County their executive committee committee is meeting virtually on Wednesday at 5 pm.
4: Um, they have a couple um, resolutions, um, mostly getting money for the Maternal, Infant, and Early Childhood Home Visiting Program. Um, there is uh, some ARPA funds or some federal funds, but then also the Roots and Rings Foundation, which is from EPIC, um, is going to be giving some money towards that. And then they have another resolution um, to adopt their 2023 operating budget proposal to both the city and the county because it's the joint city and county um committee it's got to go through both of those bodies so a little bit of an extra hurdle for them
9: okay interesting so at 5:30 on thursday we have uh we have a hybrid meeting of the executive committee of the dane county board but this sounds like a little bit of a special meeting
4: um, yes, they have quite a few people who could be there in attendance. Um, so they have noticed it for um, a quorum for the Environmental, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee, Public Works and Transportation Committee, Parks Commission, Henry and Violet Zoo Commission, and the OEI Advisory Board, which is the Office of Equity and Inclusion. Um, and that is because they are getting a presentation about the findings for um, parks and zoo equity and access program evaluation which is all the controversies we're hearing about um, some of the race issues um, in employment for the county so that's why all of those bodies are going to be there Um, they also will then be looking at two different um, referendums they're looking at putting on the ballot one is about legalizing marijuana in Wisconsin and the other is on the abortion ban and then they are also um, getting a report about um, building a relationship with UW-Madison. Not entirely sure what that one's about, but I'm sure that um, there's lots of opportunities for the county and the university to work together uh, researching various projects and things like that.
9: Yeah. Um, what, take advantage of this world-class university, right? Exactly. F- happening right after that is the Dane County Board, uh, which is a hybrid meeting, so happening virtually, and at the city-county building 201.
4: Yeah, they also had a, a, a kind of long agenda. I'm not sure they have a lot of controversial things that they will be talking about, but they will be um, having that jail contract come back before them. Um, they also have the Broadband Task Force report. Some folks may be, be waiting for that. If you are not in one of the metropolitan areas, that may impact you. Um, they're also looking at renaming the North Mendota Natural Resource Area in the town of Westport. Um, Lots of zoning actions, like over 20 of them. Um, And then some of the things that I was mentioning earlier, the leases at the airport, as well as the referendum questions will be on the- Yeah, but that gun buyback
9: program from the sheriff's office. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's the county. Let's move on to the city of Madison. And Transportation Policy and Planning Board in progress now. It's a virtual meeting. Seems like there is a lot of transportation issues that are being dealt with tonight.
4: Yes. Um they um have, were the only meeting tonight, which was I thought oh, was a little yeah. unusual. Um, but they are still talking about um the different positions, the way they're sort of switching around various uh leadership positions within um Madison Metro. Um and then they are going to be talking about the speed policy on shared use path shared use paths. Um so that's you know when people are trying to use the the bike paths for all kinds of things. Um, What's the speed Mm. policy going to be there? Um, They also are going to be looking at having health and safety goals in the city's performance excellence framework, which is what kind of gets things into the budget. Um, They will also be looking at uh, the Reiner neighborhood development plan and um, looking at additional grants from the city of Madison for vision zero.
9: Yeah, and just going back to that shared path thing, right? So I, I, you think, oh, what could it be, right? Uh, but we're, we're, what about those wheels that just look like they have a board on them that can go real <laughs> right. fast? That's what they're talking about, right?
4: Yeah, they're talking about I think speed in general for all the different uses of the path. Yeah. But yes, yeah, some some of the newer um, vehicles that people have. Yeah, what are? Um, it's are just amazing those
9: things areas. even work. I don't, but I guess I'm getting yeah. over something.
4: It seems like it's yeah, it's defying gravity somehow. <laughs>
9: Yeah, and it's just one wheel with a board on it. This shouldn't be a mode of transit, whatever. But we'll probably all be riding boards that just have one wheel on it in 10 years. So, But that's what they're talking about, electric bikes and stuff and sharing, sharing the road, but sidewalk.
4: Yep path sharing the bike path
9: <laughs> okay well let's move on to the common council okay because they uh, are meeting at 6 30 on tuesday
4: um they have a couple zoning issues um 2005 north sherman avenue that's the one that's out there by oscar meyer a lot of folks may be interested in that they also have another project at 3401 east washington avenue um they also are doing their annual action plan to hud for where their funding priorities are going to be Um, for a lot of the housing and homelessness-related type activities. Um, They're also looking at, um, for the folks who are staying in the city hotels um, that were experiencing homelessness, they are looking at um, extending a program where they'll be able to get rent paid for, I think, at least a year, possibly two. Um, And so they're looking at some funding for that. Well, let's
9: just talk about one last thing here. We do. uh, Everyone's going to just have to go to forwardlookout.com this week to check out what's going on with the ALRC and we have a meeting of the police civilian oversight board on uh, their executive committee on Thursday. But, um, you know, one interesting um, committee that we don't see very often is that uh, the Madison guaranteed income pilot program task force. So that's going up and running and is a, uh, it, it is privately funded, but that's um, a, kind of a brand new experiment in the city of Madison.
4: Yeah. That one was interesting to me. They're already choosing a new chair. So I'm not sure what happened there. I thought that was a little, little unusual um but they are going to be um talking about program implementation dates so like when when are they going to get started um and then some of the policy discussions around um, that program will also be discussed
9: brenda conco forwardlookout.com lookout.com thanks for joining me today
4: you're welcome
0: This Wednesday is the anniversary of American Indian movement leader Leonard Peltier's temporary escape from prison in 1979. This week on The Past Isn't Past, contributor Harry Richardson has the story of his arrest and short escape, and why that story still matters.
3: The prosecutor stated that
9: they did not know who killed their agents, nor did he know what participation Leonard Peltier may have played in it.
7: But someone has to pay for the crime. This Wednesday, July 20th, marks the day in 1979 that convicted American Indian Movement AIM activist Leonard Peltier escaped from the Federal Correctional Institution at Lompac, California. Peltier remained at large for three days before he was recaptured near Santa Maria after a farmer allured the authorities that Peltier had eaten some of his pumpkins. Peltier was apprehended without incident. Peltier had staged a risky escape after getting a tip off from a Native American, Robert Hugh Wilson, that certain parties had asked Wilson to kill Peltier. Peltier had been imprisoned for two years when he escaped. His conviction stemmed from the federal government's attempt to blame him for the killing of two FBI agents on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota on June 26, 1975. Pine Ridge, Had been the center of a struggle between two factions over the issue of mining of the sacred Black Hills. The American Indian Movement, AIM, came to the defense of the Black Hills, supporting elders in the community, eventually leading to an armed takeover of Wounded Knee. The FBI laid siege to the area that lasted 71 days in early 1973. The situation was still tense when Peltier came to the region in 1975 as an AIM peacemaker During Peltier's trial, prosecutors hid key evidence. The FBI threatened and coerced witnesses into lying. The only direct witness to Peltier as the killer later admitted she had lied under duress by FBI agents. In the end, Peltier was convicted of aiding and abetting. Even the government admitted it had no idea whether he killed the agents or not. A former U.S. attorney who supervised the prosecution team post-trial, Has called for clemency for Peltier. A former appellate judge who was part of the court during two of Peltier's appeals cases has called for his release. There have been a number of efforts to free Peltier. The parole board has always denied his appeals. He is next eligible for parole in 2024. Amnesty International has long called for his release, as has the National Congress of American Indians and their Canadian equivalent. Several noble laureates, including the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Pope Francis, the Dalai Lama, Coretta Scott King, and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, also support Peltier. Over 270,000 people have signed a petition for his release. As of last October, 11 House members supported Peltier's clemency. Three U.S. Senators have called for his release, Vermont Senators Bernie Sanders and Patrick Leahy and Brian Schatz, Democrat, Hawaii, chair of the Senate Indian Affairs Committee. Recently, Schatz pressed Attorney General Merrick Garland on the status of Peltier's clemency petition. Garland responded that he didn't know about Peltier's case beyond what he has read in the press. Last month, North Dakota State Representative Ruth Anna Buffalo, Democrat, gave a statement to the U.N. Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues Demanding Clemency for Peltier. The case of Leonard Peltier demonstrates the failure of the U.S. criminal justice system to provide real justice for Native peoples, as well as the government-generated environment of racism that consistently leads to unjust convictions. She urged the U.N. to push for a means for relief and justice for Leonard Peltier. Peltier announced 77 has serious health conditions. He recently survived an ugly bout with COVID-19. He also has kidney disease, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, a heart condition, degenerative heart disease, and constant shortness of breath and dizziness. In a recent interview, Peltier said his message to President Biden would be simple. I am not guilty of this shooting. I am not guilty, he said. I would like to go home to spend what years I have left with my great-grandkids and my people. Over the years, the biggest obstacle to Peltier's release has been the FBI. Peltier knows exactly what he would say to the FBI director. Stop killing my people, that's all I would tell him, he said. Stop killing my people, arrest the people that are guilty of crimes on the reservations. And that is our story for today. For passes past pastime, past, I'm Harry Richardson.
1: Time right now is 6:46 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news right here on WORT.
0: With over 17 million acres of forested landscape, it's no secret that finding a balance between those who claim those forests in the name of environmental justice On last week's 8 o'clock buzz, WORT producer Kai Brito spoke with Lizzie Condon and Jessica James with the Wisconsin Academy of Sciences, Arts, and Letters to learn how they are setting out to do that seemingly impossible task.
10: What makes our Wisconsin landscape so special? Can you describe the qualities of Wisconsin's landscape that make it a unique environment to explore the effects of climate change?
6: (laughs) So this particular project is looking at basically a what a lot of folks are now calling natural climate solutions, looking at the potentials of our natural landscapes, natural and working landscapes to offset carbon emissions. This is something that is being explored globally worldwide. And we do think it has uh, big applications here in Wisconsin. And one big reason for that is our forested land resource. There is a paper that we reviewed for this report from Gerscom et al in 2017, and it basically said that natural climate solutions overall, uh, in combination with other solutions like renewable energy, can account for 37% of carbon offsets. That's pretty big. Yeah, it's really big. And of that, forests have the biggest potential. And here in Wisconsin, we have 17 million acres of forested land. So we have a lot of potential here. Uh, We also have a really big forestry industry that Is you know could be uniquely poised to be a part of climate solutions.
10: So uh, the big thing here, you know, we got some description of what what our forests contain and what's the status of of what's Mm -hmm. available in Wisconsin. Based on 2021, the big takeaway was carbon sequestration, and that was Mm -hmm. via you know, preventing uh, tree loss through various means, as well as better farming practices, what has changed majorly from last year's report? Or is it just more of an expansion, just bigger understanding of how to go about that?
6: Yeah, I would say that this report is a deep dive into the potential in Wisconsin forestry. Uh, so the 2021 report was looking at it broad at overall different types of landscapes, including forests. And then this year, we looked specifically at how can we encourage more carbon sequestration and storage in Wisconsin forests?
10: Mm-hmm. Now, um, let's just discuss what they are. Now, recommendation number one through ten, we'll start with one and, you know, go on um, first one, uh, revising the DNR's silviculture handbook and guidance. So let's talk about what will that accomplish and how will that start uh, changing things at the you know, state level?
6: Yeah. So two really big themes that we gleaned from this report are reflected in our first two recommendations. So the first one is that everyone we talked to talked about information in some way, either that there's not enough, there's too much, it's overwhelming, or they don't know exactly where to go to get it. One thing that we asked almost every single person that we talked to is where do you get information and who do you trust? And the Civil Culture Handbook, which is um, published by DNR, the living document that gets changed and updated all the time. A lot of people pointed to that document as where they get information. And this was really like everybody we talked to that wants information on silvicultural practices, wants information on how to manage a forest. So, not just DNR foresters but really everybody in the state is looking to that document for guidance. So um, yeah, folks really wanted information on best management practices within silviculture. And we have Jess here uh, who has a background in forestry. I have a background in kind of general ecology, but Jess has more of a background in forestry. And I just wanted her to talk a little bit about um, some of the practices uh, that encourage carbon sequestration and storage in forestry. This report does not focus in on any one particular practice, but I just wanted to give your listeners a little bit of a background on what we mean when we talk about increasing carbon sequestration and storage in forestry.
11: Yeah, thanks, Lizzie. Uh, In this information that can be found as well as in the 2021 report, we did outline some best practices that we found through research consultation with some of our core team members, and it was backed up. In this 2022 report with our focus group members, so some best management practices we've heard from folks is really avoiding forest loss. That's one method of delaying harvest and forest stands to promote the uptake of carbon through storage and sequestration. You can find in young growth forests, they rapidly take up carbon, obviously different species take up carbon at different rates Um, And then old growth is ultimately where the carbon really is stored. And you'll find across the forestry community that there's a lot of different thoughts on young growth versus old growth, but all of them are really impassioned. And so through our focus groups, we really, really heard from the individuals on the ground working in their forested lands about delaying harvest, different thinning methods, which you can almost view as pruning and increasing the growth rate of their Forests And ultimately, all of these things really tie into co-benefits as well. If you care about recreation, care about water quality and wildlife, that's really what the individuals we spoke to, myself personally, uh, it all ties together. Taking care of your forest ultimately takes care of the things that we all care about as
10: well.
6: Yeah. And it also can go hand in hand with the thriving forestry industry, which is what we have here in Wisconsin.
10: Yep. That was Wisconsin's Forested Lands Opportunities for Carbon Sequestration and Storage. Thank you to Lizzie Condon, Environmental Initiatives Director at the Wisconsin Academy of Sciences, Arts and the Letters, as well as Jess James, Climate and Energy Initiative Coordinator, Wisconsin Academy of Sciences, Arts and Letters. Thank you both for being on the show.
6: Thank you so much, Kai. We look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you.
1: On this week's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on the small screen. The Princess is an over-the-top revenge fantasy, while The Sea Beast brings us into a great new animated adventure to fight giant sea monsters. These guys...
4: ...with the wrong princess.
7: That was lit from the trailer for The Princess, the new over-the-top revenge action movie directed by Lee Van Kitt. I enjoyed the high-energy creative fight choreography by Stanimir Stamatov and Samuel kifi Abri. Joey King is pretty good as the fighting princess and we get a couple of pretty good villains as well in her would-be king suitor Julius Dominic Cooper, and his cruel able enforcer Moira Olga Curry-Lenkov. My opinion on this is not widely shared, though. The film got a 59% critics and 46% audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes. The plot is pretty generic, but serves its purpose to set up the action. After a traditional opening with a bit of Celtic-inspired flutes, a pink sunrise, and a beautiful spindly tower where a princess lies in a bed of rose petals, the traditional ends. Our princess is bound by chains, yet still manages to overcome two hapless guards set to fetch her for her forced marriage to the evil Julius. Julius has captured the rightful king, her father, Ed Stoppard, the queen, Alex Reed, and her eleven-year-old sister, Violet, Caitlin Rose Downey, to force the princess into marriage. Once the princess escapes the tower, she embarks on a series of entertaining fight scenes, often using found objects to fend off swords, maces, and other threatening medieval instruments, wielded by a seemingly endless stream of men out to capture her. Finally, she reaches an ally in the kitchen, her friend and mentor Lynn, Veronica No, who she teams up with to great effect on yet more hapless attackers. Moira, the would-be king's defender, comes closest to being her match, in a fun battle scene toward the end. All in all, a fun escapist action movie, no real plot, but fun scenes, and a spirited performance by Joey King. Now for another streaming film, a warm hearted adventure story with beautiful animation. I see a fire in her. Same fire I saw in you. Monsters I can handle. We got it right where we want it. Wait, Jacob! That one. She'll be the death of me. Hmm. That was clipped from the trailer for The Sun Beast, written and directed by Chris Williams. This is an amazingly rendered animated film with a predictable but enjoyable sea-going adventure set in a land where monsters are real. Williams co-directed The Wonderful Manoa and The Great Bolt and has done a fine job here of giving us an engaging cast of characters amidst the threatening ocean. Our story centers on the brave crew of The Inevitable. The sea-bound kingdom has long used its bravest sailors to defend them against sea monsters. The crew includes women and people of color. The story is told largely from the point of view of 11-year-old Macy, voiced by Zeri Angel Hader. Macy is a free spirit who has spent much of her life in an orphanage reading the stories of the monster slayers. She escapes and joins a cheering crowd, greeting the inevitable, who end up, where else, at a rowdy bar to celebrate. There is the anvil-cheeked Captain Crow, voiced by Jared Harris, who we've already seen as nearly consumed by revenge on the most fearsome sea monster of all, the Red Bluster. Red Bluster has a giant horn and reminded me vaguely of a whale. The movie freely borrows from several nautical adventures like Moby Dick, Pirates of the Caribbean, and, say some critics, How to Train Your Dragon. Macy meets the square-jawed, barrel-chested, popular second-in-command, Jacob, voiced by Carl Urban. Jacob helps her through an open window and immediately regrets it. Macy impresses the captain, who sees her fire. But Jacob just sees an annoying kid who isn't ready to go to sea and will just hold them back. Macy, the captain, points out that Jacob was her age when he washed up on the Inevitable, a victim of a shipwreck, presumably caused by the sea monsters, but that doesn't matter to Jacob. He gets a carriage driver to take her to safety. Soon the crew is back on board the Inevitable and again opening up some barrels when Macy is found to have stowed away. The crew accepts her presence and tries to protect her. This doesn't go well. The crew is out on what may be their final mission to get Red Bluster, before the ungrateful King and Queen's Navy super ship. But Macy makes an unexpected discovery about Red Bluster, and soon Macy and a reluctant Jacob are out on their own unique adventure. All in all, a fun action movie with extraordinary animation and an enjoyable cast, especially the warm interplay between Zari, Angel, Hader, and Carl Urban. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson.
0: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Reed Kamai. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Kai Brito with the 8 o'clock buzz, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan. Ken Brady engineered the show, Nate Wegehaupt produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields.
1: And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you might get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.